Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you please turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord, if you know a little bit about history, you might uh, recall that in the 17th century, the Reformed Church in Scotland was experiencing terrible persecution. You see, in those uh, days, uh, the state or the government was seeking to bring the Reformed churches under the power of the king and under the power of the bishops who reported to the king. Indeed, they were trying to establish an Episcopalian or an Anglican form of church government upon the Christian people of that land. But you see, so strongly did the Reformed believers in those days hold to the Reformed faith that they had made a solemn league and covenant unto God to uphold the teachings of the Reformed Church, including the liberty of the church under the headship of Christ. And so a great number of those Reformed believers, rather than submit to the government oppression, they began to meet in secret in these formally illegal uh, gatherings. And one of those people, we are told, was a little girl who was a Christian uh, girl, and she was traveling to meet with the other uh, Christians in a secret place to hear the preaching of the gospel when she was confronted with some soldiers reporting to the king. And the soldiers came to this little girl and asked her, who are you and and where are you going? What is your, your purpose for being out here? And I'm sure the, the children here can appreciate what a dilemma that would be. Oh no, like, do I lie in order to preserve myself and, and the other Christians? What is it that I should do? And, and in that moment, the Lord gave that child the, the words to speak. And this is what the little girl said. She said, you see, I'm, I'm going out today because my older brother has died. And I'm going to a public reading of his will. And I'm going to listen to see if he has left me any inheritance. And of course, the, the soldier said, well, go on your way then. So she went and, and she went to hear the preaching of the gospel. And it's rather clear that the, the text that was informing this little girl's uh, answer was that we have just read Here in Hebrews chapter 9, there's a very wonderful explanation of the gospel of salvation. And and the explanation of it is that it functions on the logic and on the principles of a last will and testament. This is 
Uh, we have what happens even in our own society. Someone dies, and, and the question becomes, oh, did that person leave a will? Did they, they say who's going to get the house, who's going to get the vehicle, who's going to get this money or that money? And, and so it goes. After the death follows the inheritance. And depending on what uh, translation of the Bible you may have, you, you may see that the word... Uh, in verse 15, is sometimes translated covenant. I think that's how the New King James translated it. But even if uh, you read further on in the New King James's translation, it uh, renders the very same Greek word, testament, in verses 16 and 17. Indeed, as we'll see, the logic of this uh, passage is, is very clear. The, the New King James or authorized version is accurate in translating this word as testament or will. And my hope is that as we come to see how it is that the gospel functions as a testament or a will, that we will come to see something of the very uh, heart of the gospel, how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ's death is the source of all grace and blessing that the Lord's people enjoy. And my hope is that this will uh, also allow us to appreciate the doctrines that we find in the Heidelberg Catechism as we come to that place in our series. Why don't we take a look at what our Catechism says about these things in Lord's Day 16 on page uh, 44. Begin reading at uh, question 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Answer, because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Question 41. Why was he also buried? Answer, thereby to prove that he was really dead. Question 42. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Answer, our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. Question 43. Why, what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? Answer. That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him. And so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And Lord willing, we will refer in this message to uh, questions 40, 42, and 43. And so with the Lord's help, let's uh, begin uh, by considering the necessity of Christ's death, the necessity of Christ's death. And uh, this is forced upon us by our catechism in a very interesting way, this, this topic of the necessity of Christ's death. You'll notice that when we read a uh, question and answer 40, it is not so much uh, asserted as it is assumed. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Answer, because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins 
could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. And this was actually a controversy in the days of the Reformation when our confession was written. You see, there were some theologians in the Roman Catholic Church who argued that the death of Christ was not necessary. And he said that even if Christ had only suffered in this way, if, if even a single drop of his blood had been shed, even that amount of suffering would have been enough for the salvation of the whole world. And our confession is seeking to contest and refute this by pointing out that no, it was necessary, not only that he suffer, as we have considered recently in this series, but also that he die, that there be a separation of body and soul. Yes, under the extreme agonies of the, the torture of the cross, and in that way that he actually died. And the message of the catechism, as well as the scriptures, such as our text, Hebrews 9, verse 15, is that this was so completely necessary for the salvation of sinners. It says, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Why? And, and so, in what sense is, is he required to be the mediator, the one who brings together a sinful humanity and a righteous God, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It's important to see here that what we have in this text is the necessity of the death of Christ put forth as a satisfaction for sin. It's uh, spoken of here that this death of Jesus Christ, it was necessary for the redemption of the transgressions. And that might be a bit of an odd way of, of putting it. It's not... We would say the, the transgressions or the sins that he came to save. But uh, in fact, what, it, what it's getting at there is that this redemption is on account of these transgressions, on account of these sins. The word redemption, you see, it, it has the idea of the payment of a just price. It is the giving of a ransom. That is the teaching of of this portion of the word of God, that, that when Christ died, it was not merely as, um, as something that was an example to us about a good man who, who died. It was not merely something that uh, is set forth as a part of, of the gospel, but it is this, this to it. The death that he died, it constituted the payment for the sins of them that were under the first testament. And so the idea here is that it's comprehending all those believers who died from the time of Adam all the way to the time of Christ, the Old Testament. They all have their salvation by virtue of this death of Christ. And the point of the apostle here is not to limit the 
the satisfaction of Christ's death to that time, but rather it's, it's to say that they also are included. In the previous uh, verse, in verse 14, he had spoken about how it is that the death of Christ is effective for the believers that exist today under the New Testament. And now he is saying anyone, no matter where they have lived, if they have the salvation that, that God promises, they have it in virtue of the death of Christ. And so necessary, so necessary is uh, this that it is that which constitutes the essence of the gospel. And this is why it can be spoken of as a, a testament or a will. Look how he follows this in verses 16 and 17. For where a testament is, or where a will is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. And so, I don't think it's, it's insisting that we apply this uh, example or this illustration so, so hard that we would uh, say that the gospel is like a will in every respect. Of course, as, as you look at this, you come to see that there are senses in which uh, a will would not operate exactly the way our salvation in Jesus Christ does. But the point that's being driven home here is that in this respect, it is uh, identical to it. If you hear that you've been left an inheritance, you've been left a great gift bestowed upon you, upon someone else's death in their will, you will not receive that apart from that person actually dying. And so also... It is with the gospel, with this New Testament. Apart from Christ dying, there is no blessing and no salvation which we may possess. This is spoken, obviously, very plainly and, and clearly in this passage. But in our, in our catechism, we come to see that it's trying to make us think even deeper than that. Not only, why, not only the fact of this necessity but also the reasons for this necessity. Why is it that the death of Christ should be so necessary? And this is what the Catechism says as the answer. Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. And this... I think is, is evident if you would look also at, at our text as well. This is, is really interlaced throughout the whole passage, and that is the justice of God. Was there anything that was communicated more clearly under the laws of Moses than the justice of God? As the apostle will go on to say, um, in verse 22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. 
He's talking about how under that old economy, when Moses was given all those ceremonial laws, it was filled with all these sacrifices, the slaying of bulls and goats and lambs and all these other other sacrifices, testifying that the wages of sin is death, that there must be a just payment, there must be a shedding of blood, wherever there is sin. And so it is that God cannot simply overlook the sins of his people. This is sort of how we can fall into this hazy thinking of the world, this this humanistic approach that simply looks at the justice of God as though it were a secondary issue, something you can dispense with once you come into the higher teaching of the gospel. And so we'd come to oppose the justice of God to the mercy of God. And, and the very message of the Bible becomes just a hodgepodge of confusion. And, and sinners are led to their eternal destruction because they don't hear the clarity of this message. Not by overlooking his justice, but precisely because God is just. And flowing out of that justice is the logic of this gospel. There must be satisfaction. There must be the shedding of blood and the, and the blood of, of the mediator, the Son of God, in order for sinners to be saved. And not only the justice, but also the truth of God, as our, as our catechism says. The idea here is that, yes, you could, you could say that the death of Christ is necessary because his justice demands a punishment of sin. But you could also say it this as well, that his truth demands it. Now, what is it getting at? Well, this isn't truth in the abstract, but rather we could say his truthfulness, which is the idea here. What God has spoken in, in times past through his servants, the prophets. This as well demanded that salvation be accomplished in this way, through the death of Jesus Christ. And even in our text, you see that this is spoken of, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In this great uh, testament of salvation, there is this promise, which doesn't just go back to the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, but rather it was given also under the Old Testament. It was given to all those who in those days were appointed unto eternal life. Turn back in this uh, book of Hebrews, you can see that the promise to which uh, the apostle is speaking is referred to at great length in chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless thee. And multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, speaking of Abraham, he obtained the promise. 
For men, verily, swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by, into, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So you see that for the apostle, speaking of how the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ come out of the very heart of the promises given to our father Abraham, it was a very practical usefulness in the days in which he was writing. He says, as he says in verse 18, that we are to know this so that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The idea here is that the faith of Christians, also under the New Testament, it should not be something that's, that's weak and flickering and fading as, as though we're being cast to and fro with every circumstance of life and every trial that we're encountering. No, there, there should be something that is strong, something that is at the very core of you and able to sustain you throughout all those things. And what is it? The apostle would direct us to, well, it is to these two things, the immutable things, he says in verse 18, in which it was impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation. That's really the, the, the first of these two things, God's character himself, the fact that he cannot lie, that he is the God who is complete truth. He would deny himself if he were to lie. And added to his great character is the oath that he swears. The oath given to Abraham, which is summarized in verse 18. Surely blessing I will bless thee, and and multiplying I will multiply thee. He's, He's talking about the seed he would give to Abraham, through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this, this is ultimately, uh, as the Apostle says in our text, the promise, the promise that is fulfilled in Christ, in the death of Christ. All the things that were ever promised, they lead us unto this place that it must be that the Son of God would die. It must be that the Son of God would become our mediator. It must be that he would give a, a perfect satisfaction for sins. Because otherwise, the very truth and the very truthfulness of the very living God would be sacrificed. This is how we should come to all parts of the Word of God congregation. This is especially what this whole book of the Hebrews teaches us. It gathers together all these different passages from the Old Testament and shows how they all find their completion, their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, His person, His work, and His salvation. But we don't just end there. We don't just end by by seeing the glories of Christ and the mercies of Christ 
in every part of the truth of God, but we press on, we press on. And, and with this apostle, we find that we can have that very consolation which he and all the elect of God enjoyed. We can have him if we would look for it where it is to be found, in no other place, not our, our own uh, religious activities, not through our own wisdom, but through Jesus Christ, his person and his work. That's the, the wonderful truth about the death of Christ. It is something which isn't just an arbitrary thing that pops out of nowhere. It is something that everything else is connected with in one way or another. You can't understand anything in the whole Bible or anything in the Christian life if you get this wrong. It is Christ's death for sinners that is the heart of everything. So that in the first place we see from, uh, from the text and from our catechism the necessity of this death. But I'd also like to speak with you about what uh, particular benefits we see in this chapter and in our catechism as they concern the benefits, the benefits for believers. And this is uh, spoken up in uh, verse 42, or sorry, question 42 in the catechism. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Answer, our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. So here we have a very practical question that is given here. And again, this is helpful to understand if you know that in the days of the Reformation in particular, this was one of the things that was being contended about. Is it the case that the death of Jesus is really enough? Is it a perfect satisfaction or must more be done to add to it? The Roman Catholic Church particularly in those days, taught that something more must be done. Yes, you have uh, a satisfaction for sins on the cross, but also you must continue to atone in your physical suffering and then on and on after your death in purgatory for the sins uh, committed uh, at a certain point in time, for example, after baptism. So the idea there is there's more that must be done. And the reformer said, no, that's, that's not true at all. That would be a blasphemy to say there's any defect in this death of Christ. But then the question becomes that even a child could understand that this problem. Well, Jesus has died for us. Why then? Why then must we die? Why is death a, a continual sorrow and a grief that the people of God experience? Why is it that... There are those that whom we love, who we cherish, who we, we spend our whole lives with, and then suddenly they are absent from us. But more essentially, for our very selves, why is it that our whole lives seem to be a continual dying? Our bodies are degrading and, and breaking down and growing older and more wrinkled, and, and in all these ways, and we're heading for that certain reality of death. It seems to be sort of a, a common denominator for everyone, isn't it? Even the case that in our chapter uh, 9 of Hebrews, it's put here almost as a truism, as something that covers everyone. In verse 27, 
and it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And there, there's, there's no dis- distinction, is there? there? There's no distinction on the surface between the one who dies in the Lord, the one who dies in faith, the one who, who dies forgiven, and the one who dies without any of the blessings of this New Testament. And yet there is every manner of difference. There is an infinite difference between these two ways of dying. Hence the apostle adds immediately after that in verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Apostle saying, yes, it's appointed unto man once to die. And that death is a, is a terrifying thing to contemplate in itself. But don't contemplate it in itself. Consider that this, this logic also falls upon the believer in a unique way. Not merely that you die for yourself, but that Christ has already died for you. And having once died as an offering to bear the sins of many, he, he points us ahead to that Great salvation which we will enjoy in eternity. And it's not only there, but also in the text that uh, we are centrally considering in verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What a way to say it. You see, the inheritance that they would be familiar with thinking about would be the inheritance of the land under the Old Testament. That was especially promised to the saints of old, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were to be given a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty, a land of great joy and blessing. And... What the apostle here, I, I think, is really wanting to, to stress is that that was, was not really the point of it. Even in those days when that land was centrally promised to the people of God, it was rather a sign of something greater than that. Even for those who were called according to God's promises under the Old Testament, they were called unto something greater than an inheritance like a plot of land that will pass away. No, they were called to inheritance that will never pass away, an eternal inheritance. And it's bringing before our minds here the unsearchable riches of heaven, that glorified state in which we freed from sin with glorified bodies and righteous souls will experience the blessings of God in Jesus Christ forever and ever. Things that angels would desire to pry into are are spoken of here. Not that we would have all the answers about what that would entail, but rather that it's holding out for us even a taste of it. Even the substance of it we enjoy even now. That's why it says, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The blessings of heaven are experienced in a way even right now for the believer. 
They are pledged to him or her. And by faith, we, we delight in that now. The very God that we will spend eternity with, we now know him now as our father and as our friend. And so, in the light of this, in the light of this eternal inheritance, which is ours through the death of Jesus Christ, our own deaths, what, what are they? They are, even as our catechism says, just a passageway into life. So when we think of those who die in the Lord, we ought to be so careful how we think about them. We ought not to pity them. We ought not to think that they are, are now experiencing a lower level of existence simply because we do not see them as, as we did walking about in this world. No, they are experiencing life and life abundant in a way that we cannot even possibly imagine. They know more of God than the greatest theologian. They have a greater acquaintance with him than any of us can experience, no matter how much we are blessed of the Lord in this life. And that is the, the lot of every believer congregation. That is something that ought to contextualize every kind of suffering that we experience. You think about those who are on the edge of that earthly inheritance, on the very edge of the promised land. And they went in and, and, and they were frightened off, weren't they, by those great giants and all the, the trials that they, they saw that were in the way of experiencing the blessings of the promised land. But those fathers under the Old Testament, if they were true believers, if they were truly called by the promise of God, then their faith ultimately rested in something greater than that, and that is what sustained them. Let us not be like those people who on the very edge of the promised land were, were shaken and afraid and driven to all kinds of temptation. No, let us be like those who in faith rest upon the promise of God, even as we enter into that that final step of crossing the Jordan. But not only is uh, the transformation of the believer's death held forth here, but also the holiness that is given unto us in this life. Thus we see in question 43, what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? Answer, that by virtue thereof our old man is crucified dead and buried with him. And so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Where we would trace not only the satisfaction for our, uh, our sins that we have committed and the just standing that we enjoy as a result of that before God, we must not also neglect this great blessing, our catechism is reminding us apart from the death of christ upon the cross we would not know the holiness that is characterized in in the life of every true believer this is emphasized as well by um, the apostle and he it's connected in the verse that's immediately before verse 15 and verse 14 of chapter 9 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And the idea here is the one apart from the grace of God, they are completely unfit to serve the living God. Their consciences condemn them, that they are condemned. And so everything that they do, it will just add to that condemnation because it will be, as it were, trying to satisfy for sins where only Christ's death can do that. But where the blood of Christ has been shed, where he has died in the place of sinners, and where that death is proclaimed in the gospel, and where it is rested upon in faith, then it has this effect that those consciences are purged from dead works to serve the living God. And I think there's, there's a double meaning here, as, as really there, there is in, in our catechism as well. Yes, it's the case that if it not been the case that Christ had died, there would have been no way in which we could have the Holy Spirit to work this grace in our hearts. It was the death of Christ that earned and merited the grace of the Holy Spirit, in order to so purify our hearts. Yes, that's certainly here. But it's also this, that it's in actually resting and trusting in the death of Christ and having the knowledge that our sins are forgiven, that the sanctification and the ongoing holiness which characterizes the Christian, it can truly be what it is always meant to be, the loving service of a grateful heart that has been forgiven of all its sins, not in order to somehow earn our standing before God, but out of pure love and gratitude towards God. And so if you really are struggling with your holiness, if you can look at yourself and say that, that you are compromising with sin, you are, are wounding your conscience, you are living in a way that is unpleasing to the Lord, yes, it's the case you should read of the law. Yes, it's the case you should come to understand how great your sin is. Yes, you need that as the guide for your holiness, but do not, believer, do not neglect to consider the glories of the cross. If you neglect that, how can you grow in holiness? That is how your conscience is purged. That is how you are made fit to serve the living God. If we would truly be a church that is characterized by holiness, if in our families and in our personal lives people would say, there is a true Christian, there is someone who has truly been with Jesus Christ, let us not neglect this most important spiritual duty to consider the cross work of Christ, to consider not only the agonies of his suffering, but his actual death, and see that every bit of holiness which we may yet enjoy was purchased at such a dear cost. And having seen that congregation, let that stir us up to a zeal and eagerness, serve the living God. All congregation, this New Testament, this last will and testament, which is the gospel of salvation, how great the riches of it are. I hope that as we've considered these things, the Lord will bless them to your consideration. And that if anyone here 
does not know what it is to truly find their name written as an heir to that great will that they will be stirred up in their souls to receive of the great gifts that are held forth here, purchased for no other reason and no other way than the death of the Son of God. Amen.